Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve with your host, Ollie Lawrence. And can you believe it? This is series three of the Protect and Serve podcast. And only 48 hours ago, I announced to my 
little band of followers that we just hit the 50,000 download mark, which is incredible. And I must admit, I'm so privileged to have the opportunity to speak to so many amazing men and women in law enforcement, not only here in the UK, but right across the world. We've spoken to people in Australia, New Zealand, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Nepal and the US. But today I've come back to London to speak to a lady who spent more than 30 years in British policing leaving at the rank of commander and receiving uh, the Queen's Police Medal. Sue Williams, welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm absolutely good. Thank you very much. And I'll correct you on that. It's nearly 41 years in policing before I retired. It's incredible, incredible numbers. And that is no mean feat. More than 40 years in British policing is incredible. So many, many congratulations. But like every good detective, I like to start right at the beginning of somebody's career and ask you why police in the first place so I I know it's going to sound really um, you know it's what everybody says we want to make a difference of course we want to do that but I was I did a lot of voluntary work so I joined what when I thought I was old because I wasn't 18 I was I think I was 21 Um, so um, in in terms of my cohort I was considered older in those days nowadays you get people joining in their 30s and 40s but then if you were in your 20s you were considered old and um, I'd already done a lot of voluntary work so I'd been doing a lot of community a lot of voluntary work I'd worked with the probation service I'd worked with victims suspects of crime as well Um, and I was also quite a sporty person and I wanted to do something that gave me the opportunity to work with people, do something positive, making a difference in the community, but also something that was like outside and where I was, you know, quite in a sportier environment. And policing just ticked those boxes. Um, My dad went berserk. He absolutely hit the roof when I told him I wanted to join. Um, And he turned around to my mum and said, don't worry, She'll never get in because she's not five foot four. On a good day, I'm five foot four. So I got in. <laughs> so 1981 um, is is a long time ago by, by any stretch. And, and policing was very, very different back in the early 1980s. What was it like uh, as a young female recruit walking through the gates of Hendon to undertake what would have been quite an intimidating process of training? Uh- I can't tell you I have no family in policing so for me walking through and seeing all those police officers was really daunting and I didn't live far from Collindale or Hendon as it is and I was late and I got bawled out for being five minutes late and I can't tell you I almost dropped everything and walked straight back out because I wasn't ready for that and I think the only thing that ever kept me going was thinking other people have done this. Other people have got through all the exams. Other people have got through there. It was three segments. So other people have got through into each segment. So if they can do it, I can do it. I often reflect on the complexities of policing in terms of the legislation and the policy and procedure and the 
operational skills and tactics which are taught to make sure that you're safe in an environment which are going to, which can often be incredibly hostile. What was it like learning all those new skills which you had never been taught before in terms of using handcuffs and speaking to people that would often may shout at you or it may be a, a scene of where you're trying to break up a domestic? What was it like for a young 20-year-old having to realise that these could be some of the issues that you may face upon graduation? Yeah, I, I mean, it was... <laughs> It was all a big shock, but it was all done in that controlled environment. So you felt like you were walking into a set of um, in a film studio because everywhere you walked, there were little scenarios set up, whether it was outside, inside. They had the police station. They had the court there at Hendon. Um, Everything was done in a safe environment, unlike today, um, you know, where the, the tutors there would push you to the nth degree, because they knew if you could do this in a training environment, you could do it out on the street. And what we don't see today is that same ethos where they're pushing people in that training environment in a safe, in that sort of safe learning structure to make the mistakes. It's better to make the mistakes in learning than to make them on the street. Um, And I think I had the most wonderful grounding Um, It was hard because it was so unusual. Um, But then we went out and we did our street duty courses um, and um, we did what we call continuation training. And the street duties course and the beat crimes course, as it was then, that was like a further three months doing minor crimes. I always remembered that. So later in my career, when I became like um, a detective or when I became a superintendent, chief superintendent, I put street duties back when they had been taken out. I put the beat crimes back because I remembered the learning that I got from it and how valuable it was just investigating very minor crime. And isn't that what they're talking about in the press at the moment? Why aren't we investigating minor crime? We taught young recruits to bite, you know, that was their first bite of a crime and how to investigate by learning how to deal with a shoplifter or a theft or whatever it happened to be in those days. And I think we sometimes we need to regress and go back and learn how we did things in the past. When you graduated, that would have been an incredibly proud day because obviously, as you pointed out, your dad wasn't best pleased Mm. that you'd picked policing. What was it like for him? It must. It's it's always an incredibly proud moment for families to see, you know, their their children, their wives, their husbands, mum and dads graduating from what is an incredibly prestigious location, known all around the world in terms of Hendon Training College. There's always a, a big fanfare. There's lots of drill. There's horses. There's a band, and obviously the commissioner takes the salute and does the inspection of you all. What was that like for you? That celebration of graduating and completing what is you know a challenging course. Yeah, um, the graduation in those days wasn't quite as it is today because uh, I joined when people graduated every single week. There were uh, intakes of about uh, 40 people every week. So 40 people were coming out the other end. So we had like, I think the most we ever had was a superintendent or a chief super um, do the parade. Um, But nevertheless, my parents were there. They were exceptionally proud. I think they had you know, 12 weeks or 15 weeks, whatever it was at the time, to get used to the fact I've joined the police and there I was in uniform. They, I let me tell you, they were my best advocates throughout my whole career. They were the ones that championed policing 
um, with their friends, their family and everyone else because they knew what I was going through and they knew the stories that I was telling on how it really was. So they're very proud, yeah. The, 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 the biggest, uh, the first hurdle that any young officer uh, has to tackle is where they're posted when they first graduate and there's often this desire to make sure that one goes to the busy locations where they're going to get plenty of challenges a bit of public order lots of activity often there's this um, sort of anticipation that one doesn't want to get somewhere in the suburbs because it might be a bit quiet and you might not get the skills and the exposure that you want where were you posted and and how did you receive the news once you were told where you were going so i was posted to kilburn in brent um i'm a brent girl born and Bred in Brent, so um, but the other side of Brent, I was more towards the Harrow side. That's where I live, so it wasn't on my doorstep. Um, so Kilburn in those days was a predominantly Irish area, um, and we had big, um, we had Biddy Mulligan's big pub, we had uh, lots of the Goldtimore, the National, lots of big dance halls, and lots of people drunk on a Thursday, Friday, and a Saturday night. Um, and lots of fights and you know I've never been in a fight in my life and there I am on a Friday night trying to herd these drunken people into the back of a van and they'd look at me and they'd they'd go can't hit a woman and I'd be yeah go on get in the back of the van and off they they got in the back of the van (laughs) Um, uh, it was was just you know I remember going out with colleagues and like uh, you know, you work in pairs up and down the Kilburn High Road waiting. You want to get your arrest because then you could go back in for a cup of tea. So we were w- walking up and down waiting for our first arrest and a fight happens and he goes, right, you, I'll take the big one, you take the little one. Only the little one was more trouble than the big one. So had a bit of a roll around and then pulled the van and back we were in the police station booking them in and a cup of tea. How did you deal with the more confronting scenes that, that present themselves in policing in your early years? Often one of the greatest challenges that we don't know how we'll, we'll deal with is, is confronting scenes around death and trauma uh, and dealing with sudden deaths and, and, and often having to deliver death messages. What were was, what was some of the challenges that you experienced in your first couple of years in managing your emotions and being able to deal with those sort of confronting scenes? Do you know... It's a really interesting question because, um, you know, I have dealt with a lot of sudden deaths, a lot of nasty incidents over the years. Um, and, you you know, I've managed to handle it well. I know not everybody does and sometimes it can be really difficult. And maybe it's just my character that I'm able to deal with what I have to deal with, go home, close the door, get on with something else and not necessarily take it home with me. But what I do see that we had, certainly in the early days, that we don't have now, is places to what I call decompress. So I would come back into the police station because you'd have your breakfast there, you'd have your meal there, your ref's time. You always had a briefing before you went, like a parade, and then you were debriefed at the end. And... In those periods, it would be that decompression where people would say to you, oh, you've just had a sudden death. How did it go? How did you get on? People were always, you know, was everything okay? Was it all right? Or you'd walk in and you'd sit down at refs and you go, I've just dealt with the most horrendous road traffic accident. And people would go, all right, what happened? You know, and they talk you through it. You talk 
you they would talk you through what happened and how you reported it and things that you know, don't forget to do this and don't forget you know you've got to go and see the family or you've got to speak to them or you know and you'd have these older PCs that would pass the knowledge on to you of what you needed to do when go forward now 40 years and when I worked as a BCU commander, yes, we had parades and I would go on parades and see people, but you'd never debrief people at the end because they were still out there at the end of their shift. They'd come in, hand the car over and go home. They don't have refs in the police station so much because they'll, there's, there's no canteens anymore, so they would get a bite to eat out and they'd just carry on to the next call or the call after. And I think that's a really sad thing, not having that opportunity to decompress um, of the incidents that you dealt with. And I'm sure that that helped me, someone that's never dealt with anything like the sort of things I saw, to be able to just get on with it. How was your family through those fairly, uh, through the through the early years of your development and your training on the road? Were you able to sort of lean on on mum and dad and family and sort of just obviously explain to them what you were going through, what you were witnessing, and and use them as a sounding board of sort of your experiences and and allow them to sort of help you where you could decompress some of those emotions. Um, Probably not. I used them. I told them the funny stories or the interesting stories. I never told them all the nasty stuff. Um, I moved out of home fairly soon after joining and had my own flat, as you did in those days, um, with flatmates. And, and maybe that helped, you know, being able to talk to a flatmate about certain things, but never talked about the gruesome stuff. Um, that you managed in work and you were able to do that because you were with people, posted with people. Um, You had uh, that team spirit was amazing. I had the most incredible team that taught me so much. And in those, this was pre-CPS days as well. So I had to go to court and prosecute my own cases. I had to do my own files, um, had my own stock of carbon paper because we only had typewriters who had a computer in those days um you know it was a fascinating time but I had some amazing people that I worked with and I was really fortunate to have a really strong team I know other teams weren't the same and people suffered but I had a really strong team so I was really fortunate how soon after you know the the, obviously the first couple of years of, of anybody's um transition into the vocation of policing is one about absorbing the information the experiences of your training colleagues and your training tutors and 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 constables that have been around a while and your sergeants but after you've established yourself after a few years at what point did you recognize or or have an appetite for supervision to, to be in a supervisory capacity to understand that you could do what your supervisors did and and did you have an appetite very early on for that um so I'll tell you what happened. Um, I was, I didn't have a, a, a nose for crime. I, I was more traffic. I got myself involved in doing lots and lots of traffic. I prosecuted lots of my own cases, went to court a lot. Um, I learned to talk to people through using the traffic sort of legislation. Um, I didn't fall over crime bodies. Um, But then something happened because of being able to talk to people. I started interviewing people, sitting in on interviews and being very good at being able to talk to people and get something out of them. 
And that was recognised by, um, uh, like, detect senior detectives was like, oh, Sue's really good at interviewing, really good at investigating, like, low-level crimes, um, or, you know, getting people, um, you know, charged and before a court. And, and they liked that. And they, they said to me, um, we'd like you to come and join the, the crime squad. And I was like, great, I'm going to be in the CID because that was a stepping stone. You went in the crime squad, then you went in the CID. So it was an area crime squad, Q, Q division. And um, I was uh, well prepared, went up for the interview, went for the interview, but I didn't get the job. And the DCI called me in the office and said, oh, I'm really sorry, Sue. Um, but they promised it to another woman because they only took one woman on every intake and I was absolutely livid and um because I thought I'm you know the way they were talking I thought you know I, I stood a really good chance of getting a job but they promised it to another woman and at that point I thought sod you I'm going to take promotion because this is not right and I'm going to change the way things are done and that was the point I put myself on the promotion ladder um and by doing that um, and making it clear that I wanted to do promotion, I became an acting sergeant um, and they gave me the ability to help out in the custody suite. Uh, and I got my own winder binder. So it was a little metal thing that you used to put the charge sheets in the binder. And um, I had one, so I knew I was going somewhere. <laughs> and um, I was lucky. I then went for I then went for promotion and I was successful and that was the point that you know I'm going to make a difference because it's not right not having um you know just having a quota of women and not choosing people because of their abilities and skills you, you know when you and I communicated about coming on the podcast you know I often ask people for um, experiences and different stories that they can tell and over your 40 years as you've reflected there are so many highlights in your career that we could talk about we could probably speak for hours on these incredible um, experiences that you've had but one particular area that I, I'd like to talk about to start with in sort of and we'll call it the early part of your career is your involvement in the McPherson inquiry after the tragic death of Stephen Lawrence and the writing of a publication a police service for all the people and it was aimed at the recruitment retention and progression of minority ethnic officers, something that policing still struggles with today all these years later in attracting and retaining people from all backgrounds to make sure that it's representative of all of society. It's a critically important area of policing which it's forever sort of grappling with as to sort of the right formula. What was your experiences like in taking part in what was a significant moment in the history of British policing and the communities of London in the McPherson Inquiry and, and taking part in writing such an important piece of material to guide policing to be better and to be able to retain and recruit people from different backgrounds. So I, I was very fortunate that um, as an inspector I was um, a staff officer to um, a commander who was had the portfolio for um, community safety stroke diversity if you like in those days that that's kind of what it was um and um he worked for the assistant chief um the assistant um commissioner who whose role was to oversee 
um, our response to the McPherson inquiry. And um, he, so this commander was given the task to uh, do a lot of work within the McPherson uh, preparation for the report. Um, But one of the things was to, he identified, we had to have a way of being able to um, recruit and retain our black um, uh, or black and Asian minority ethnic police officers. Um, And we just did not have any process. We didn't have any positive action in place. Uh, We didn't have any process to be able to do that. And he asked me to co-write and get involved in this report. And this report became the Bible for many years, a police service for all the people, because it we did a lot of consulting, um, not just with our colleagues uh, internally, but we went to companies like British Airways, um, John Lewis, um, some big name companies out there and said, how do you do this? How do you promote people from the BAME communities? How do you, you know, retain them to take them to senior levels? And we learnt a lot from working with some of these big name companies um, to get, if you like, um, a strategy on what we could do internally. And we consulted a lot with a lot of staff associations as well as how this was going to work. And we came up with that three-pronged plan. We were going to, a strategy to retain, a strategy to promote um, and recruit as well. And within that, we put positive action policies. And there was, at the time, a big positive action drive uh, to get uh, people from different communities into the police service. Um, I mean, the whole thing was fascinating um, of that era and the the different commanders, the assistant commissioners, everybody involved. Um, there's a lot of people... Um, spent many years um and and it was i mean as you know i mean it takes years to change something like the met around and we did so much i thought was brilliant work and we're still doing it it doesn't stop it really doesn't stop you know what you learn in a certain time and the changes you make you're still evolving you're still improving And it takes years and years and years. And the one thing the Met didn't want to do was do positive discrimination. They did not want to um, put people in positions, whether it's seniority or promotion or in jobs, just because of their colour or race or whatever. They didn't want to do that. And when we spoke to individuals, they always said... I want to get there on my own merits. If I don't get there on my own merits, then don't put me in that position. So that's why the Met went with positive action and not positive discrimination. And a lot of people will say we're way behind places like New York because New York went with positive discrimination. And um, and maybe we are, maybe we did it wrong, but that was the decisions at the time. Um, and, And that's why it's taken such a long time to get to a place... And as I said, we're still not great. But to get to a place where we have had a more seniority um, representation from our black, Asian minority ethnic colleagues. What's the sort of pressures that come with being a staff officer to a commander who's in charge of such a portfolio? 
um, I would I would imagine that that is no easy task. You know, often I've spoken to a lot of former officers who've who've reached the sort of rank that you did as, as commanders, and they've been given these opportunities to to support senior officers, and they and they talk about these incredibly long hours and sort of relentless work portfolios and having to be across most of the briefs. What were your experiences as a staff officer to a commander with such an important portfolio? All of that. It was exceptionally long hours. It was four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, getting a phone call, this needs to be done and not being able to go home or to come back on a Saturday to be able to do it, cancelling all your, you know, you think it's bad as a police officer, just generally, you know, that you might have to cancel parties or, um, you know, if you're going away for a weekend, but working for a commander, they were pushed and they were under such um, tight timescales and everything was now, you know, the commissioner, the deputy commissioner, and it comes from government, it comes from higher, it's home office, they'll get a phone call from someone in government and they'll want it now. And you have to drop everything to support the lead in that whatever the area is. And with mine, it was like diversity. Public. I had a commander who was involved in public order as well. Um, and um, you just had to drop everything because... The, wherever it went up to, back up the road to the Home Office, they wanted it there and then. They wanted the answers. They wanted to know um, what we were doing, uh, the facts and figures. Um, they wanted reports. They wanted, you know, our strategy on if something had gone wrong tomorrow, what's the strategy? And you'd have to be there working with the commander to develop that strategy. And, you know, within the McPherson inquiry, that went on for months and months. You know, there was a lot coming back from the inquiry and backwards and forwards about how the Met does it. What's the Met going to do? Um, and then and then uh, when the report came out, going back to square one to pick up all the recommendations and make sure that they all um, were taken forward and done properly. Do you did you agree? And do you agree with the term that has been used previously and is used today of institutional racism within organisations like the Metropolitan Police? Or do you take the view, like Sir Mark Rowley at the moment, that what that can potentially have on the ramifications of morale across an entire organisation? Because one has to look at 40,000 staff members across the Metropolitan Police as an example. Thousands and thousands of men and women get up every day um, to, to, to support and respond to people in crisis that they don't even know from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And of course, there are going to be people within the organisation that have views and opinions that uh, that, that, that are not uh, conducive with, with the values of policing, but it takes sometimes a little while to identify those people uh, to make sure that they're no longer in the organisation. But, but more importantly, was your view at the time there in terms of managing morale and responding to the needs and expectations of the community one of we should have embraced this term of institutionally racist because Sir Paul Condon at the time wasn't one that agreed with that terminology if I'm right. Do you know what it's a really hard term to accept and I, and I get all the people that have battled you know um, and even you know Mark Rowley of today you know are we institutionally racist, sexist, you know homophobic um, you know I, it's really hard to label yourself something like that when you have 40,000, 50,000 employees, um, including all the volunteers working there, um, and label everybody with an organisation that 
is called institutionally racist. I'll tell you how I saw it. I always saw it, and I, I, I always describe this as the echoes of the past. And the, what I meant by that is, whenever you walked into a police station, all the photographs on the walls were all white men. And they were, a lot of them were white men from post-war, not, so um, the 19 sort of 20s. I th- there must have been a big round of photographs in the early 1920s. And all police stations had these massive photographs of white men um, who were police officers, detectives. Um, And when you looked, you know, in the halls of Scotland Yard, all white men. Um, And what it meant to me when I talk about echoes of the past were, these were the people that built the Met Police, policing in general. These were the people that developed the strategies develop the procedures, to develop the processes. On the, they are the building blocks deep down in what the Met is sitting on today. Now, you could say that it's institutionally racist and we've got to unpick it, but you'd pretty much have to pull the rug from under everybody's feet and start again. And I think we are living on those echoes of the past um, and that's what's been really difficult. We haven't been able to draw a line and move on completely because it's always there. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think each individual has their own interpretation as to kind of what they observed and what they sensed and and kind of what the best sort of route forward is. But it's a very, very complicated subject matter. And as you say, it hasn't been solved for many years and it'll probably take many, many years to to continue to to solve. But I I wanted to also move on to an area of your policing career, which um, always fascinates me, and that's the area of hostage negotiation and I want to caveat immediately that these questions aren't going to be around the modus operandi of your work but more to the sort of challenges and the thoughts and feelings in response to what is an incredible role responding to the needs and expectations of people in crisis and and, and one particular incident which is certainly of notoriety is the the Hackney siege back in 2002 with a a chap called Eli Hall and just for our listeners some background on that this was a siege which um took place on Boxing Day, 26th of December 2002. Eli Hall was obviously well known to police, had had a, a number of altercations, sadly, throughout his life, and and this one um, was, was no different in the sense of he'd brandished a firearm and then barricaded him inside, himself inside a premises. Now, um, incredibly dangerous, high-risk operations led by firearms teams and hostage negotiators because, obviously, the first thought is is the preservation of life, both of the offender, the police and the public, and maintaining safety and security for everybody. But what's it like when you're called to a role like that? You were there throughout the incident and the end and also gave evidence in court. Incredibly challenging, incredibly fast moving at times, but um, requires a lot of patience. So... <laughs> I always always laugh at at the Hackney siege because I was the first officer on the scene and the last officer when it ended. Um, And as you quite rightly say, I was the only one that gave evidence in court. But then I often thought to myself, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe it was my fault. If there'd been another hostage negotiator, would they have been able to wrap it up quite quickly? Um, it, It was a really challenging one. And I have the most amazing photograph 
where I'm in between um, two uh, firearms officers with machine guns and I'm standing there with a bullhorn, um, you know, one of those big sort of cone horns, shouting across the street to um, Eli, you know, to try to open the negotiations and get him to, you know, come down and, um, you know, put his gun down and come down. Um, and, you know, sadly, I mean, he he was someone that wasn't adverse to hurting people. Um, when the very first police officers had turned up on the scene because uh, there was to do with the car that was parked around the corner and had been involved in an incident. And when they turned up, he leaned out the window and shot out the window straight down at the police officers, except the front door was about 10 feet away and they didn't get hit. Um, and that would have been a whole different story. Um, so it was all really, um, you know, tensions were massively high when I got there. Um, you know, um, the uh, they had to clear the street, they had to clear the houses. Um, it was Boxing Day, so people were with their families. The press, uh, a, ma- a huge amount of press turned up um, and they had to be corralled. Um, the the world was looking at this incident, not just London, the UK, but it was across the world because these things on Boxing Days have legs. Um, and it was, you know, a really complex one that went on for, I think it was 10 days. It's the, still the longest um, in domestic sort of um, crisis negotiation. But, you know, I've been dealing with crisis negotiation now um, over 20 years. So I was like one of the long, the long runners in my hostage negotiation. And the one thing I said was, I don't do trees. I'll do anything else, but I don't do trees. And what I meant by that, if when someone's up in a tree and you have to crate, put your neck back to talk up for them, it was like unbelievable you know the strain on your body standing there for hours and hours and hours talking to someone um i remember the guy in the tree i had to lie down and look up at him because i just couldn't stand any longer um but you know there's something about getting a phone call two o'clock in the morning you know will you come out and save someone's life they're on a bridge they're trying to jump you you no one can turn that down because that's what you're there for. And it didn't matter what rank you were. You know, I went up through the ranks. Even as a commander, I turned out for hostage negotiation incidents because it wasn't about being a commander. It was about saving a life. And that was about my core in in policing that what I wanted to do, make that difference, save someone's life. So even as a commander, I'd get phone calls and, and actually, working in Scotland Yard, it was quite easy to get a fast car somewhere. Um, but I loved it. It was very rewarding, very complex, did take its toll on you when you were out there for hours and hours. Um, and, uh, you know, I had some quite memorable um, sieges and um, crisis situations. And that, they'll stay with me forever. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can save someone life, then that's what it's all about. You know, that incident um, tragically ended um, with with Hall, well, the, the, the coroner um, made the finding that uh, his death was by suicide, although he was shot by police. Obviously, it was an incident which 
ended in a way that nobody would want to see any any incident ended how how do you as a hostage negotiator um debrief yourself personally and emotionally after that do you often ask yourself questions as to what could i have done differently or what you know what would i do next time is is there a is there a period of of self-reflection I mean, you're always going to have that. You know, it was it was horrendous. I think there was the fire in the flat and he was down the stairwell and, you know, oh, it was just horrible. Mm. Um, but always, you always ask yourself, you know, could I have asked a different question? Could I have got that... Could I have got that one nugget that would have got through to the individual to make them think and stop and come out? Mm. So you're always thinking that. And, and the good thing about hostage negotiators are we are a team... Uh, we're trained really well. Um, we're, we debrief a lot. So, you know, we brief, we debrief as well. So, um, you know, we're, we're always thinking. And what works somewhere else may or may not work at the next incident, but it's always useful to know. Um, you know, they, you never lie to anyone. You always have to tell the truth because if you meet them again and you've lied... Um, you know they'll never trust you and it is all about gaining trust with that individual and finding something where you can get the trust with them um, but it's it is difficult you know um, it but it you know policing is difficult in general you know the 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 PC that comes out of training school that goes to a sudden death is it's just as traumatic um, you know whoever you are whatever you are whatever you've done these things if they don't end well are always difficult traumatic um and you think about and i still think about them um you know i've got a good network around me so you know i don't dwell on it forever but i do think about different things that have happened and you know could they have gone better um you know i think about traffic accidents that i've been to you know where you've tried to save someone's life and it's not worked um and how sad that's been um and you always say then you know is there something i could have done but um you just have to do your best you know you're trained well you have to recall your skills your knowledge put them into practice and do your best and you can't walk away this is my fault you can never say that because Things are too complex. You don't know what's going on in somebody else's mind. Um, but it was, um, there's a lot been written about the Hackney siege. Um, you know, I wasn't there for every single day, but I, I turned out, I think I was there for several days uh, in different times and different shifts and different things that happened along the way and, you know, with different people being involved um, and trying to get that trust with um, Eli Walsh and you know um i mean he let he did have a hostage and he did let the person go and but he just you know wasn't going to come out which was really sad yeah it's um it it certainly makes for sort of fascinating reading as to sort of the extent and the mm. the complexities of of such an issue and and equally the responsibility yeah. placed on the shoulders of fantastic people like you who set about to try and resolve these issues and understanding that everybody is human and that there isn't a sort of, as you say, there isn't a golden nugget at every opportunity and that sadly uh, these individuals um, take take pathways that we, we, we would hope and pray that they, they wouldn't take and it kind of falls a little bit out of our control. The one thing that I would praise is 
how the negotiating teams are set up and established and the you know there's there's a lot of support around people like myself that are out there doing the talking but there's another shell it's like layers onion layers and there's a, a layer and layer a layer around them that the politics and there was a lot of politics going on at the time doesn't even come through to someone like me talking to the person all I'm there to do is talk to the individual. I have no idea about the politics playing on with the local authority and the home office and the, the you know, the um, like the ministers and the commissioner. Completely below to me because don't interest me because the team are kept isolated to do the job that they need to do and and that is fantastic. So a lot of praise to them. One area of policing which um, I think at the moment doesn't get uh, enough focus on, and I think that's I think it's because there are so many issues facing policing. There are always fo- so many challenges facing policing because it is you know often seen upon as the, as the responsibility of policing to respond to society's needs across a, a number of different problems, and one of those for me which is the most significant, is domestic violence in the family home. And when you look at the sort of cost of living crisis and the challenges placed on families, one can only imagine at the moment what some family environments are like and the challenges which will be facing some women and men in some instances with with respect to domestic violences and the financial pressures and challenges within the home. And, And you've played a significant role in this area of work i think i think the statistics today if, and i'll be i'll stand corrected if anybody wants to fact check me but i think i think we lose maybe two or three women a week to homicides relating to domestic yeah. violence which and those numbers are, are astronomical i don't think they get enough attention and i think it's something certainly needs to be spoken more about and You've been front and centre in, in, in delivering and, and being part of domestic violence sort of strategy and policy. And you've given keynote speeches in both Russia and the US reflecting on best practice on domestic violence and child abuse, um, which I, I find to be an incredibly important portfolio. That must be an incredibly proud part of your policing career in having such an involvement in what is a very important area of policing policy. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, how I came to be in it in the first place, um, I worked on the Race and Violent Crime Task Force, if you remember, that that was looking at the sorts of um, investigations like the reinvestigation of Stephen Lawrence, Ricky Real, Michael Menser. Um, So those big sort of organ, uh, the big sort of, um, you know, unexplained deaths and and inquiries. and while I was working on the, the squad that I was on, um, 9-11 had happened. And um, the superintendent that had the portfolio for domestic abuse in the Met um, was sent to America um, to deal with um, the British victims. And while he was out there, unfortunately, he had a heart attack. And um, they, they called me into the office and they went, so we need someone to lead on domestic abuse for the Met. Um, you've run a community safety unit, haven't you, in the past? You know about domestic abuse. Could you take it over? And I'm like, yeah, as a DI, a detective inspector, I ran a 
um, a community safety unit and dealt with domestic abuse and race and uh, 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 razo, um, you know, uh, sec- uh, rape and serious sexual offending. Um, but I had knowledge and um, I suddenly found myself sitting around the table with senior stakeholders from uh, the voluntary sector, from um, other police services, from the Home Office, uh, government roundtables, with other stakeholders from probation, um, the courts, um, uh, the CPS, all different people at a huge, uh, really director level. And there am I speaking on behalf of the Met about domestic abuse and realising, you know what, we're playing at it. We're not doing it particularly well. Um, We'd... When we had to put domestic abuse teams together, um, or, or rather, no, no, it was the other way around. It was after the McPherson inquiry, um, we had to put race hate crime teams together. So the way they did it was they looked round and they went, there's a domestic abuse team in every borough. We'll bolt our hate crime teams onto that and call it a community safety unit, which is how they came about. So at least there was a domestic abuse team in every single borough that I could work with. Um, And I had the most incredible opportunities working with inspirational people, people from, um, you know, Professor Betsy Stanko um, um, and her team, you know, working on domestic violence homicide reviews, which are now statutory, uh, working on things like um, equality, um, uh, not, not the equality impact, um, risk assessments uh, for domestic abuse. We formed the very first risk assessment for domestic abuse, which has now gone on through College of Policing and everything else to be redefined and, you know, but is still there. And one of my trips was to um, America um, with a multi agency trip. And while I was out there, um, they asked me if I'd go to, like, do I want to go and see the Bronx and, you know, have a look and see how they deal with domestic abuse in the Bronx. So, yeah, of course, you know, going to go in an American police car and go around New York and whatever. And um, blue lights, two-tone, brilliant. All good stuff, just like the movies. Anyway, they took me to these domestic incidents. And um, after we finished, they started filling in a form. And I'm like, why are you filling in a form? And they went, it was a statistical form, but they said, oh, because our bosses told us we have to fill this in. I'm like, what, for every incident? And they went, yeah, every incident we have to fill in this statistical form. And you know what? I came back and I thought, you know what? I can do this, but I can go better than this. I can create a domestic abuse report book that includes a statement that has a doctor's certificate, like to sign that we could get access to their medical records, has a picture of the person, like so you can put, draw like the, um, where they've got injured on them. Um, And I created this document that I gave to the domestic abuse team. And it eventually became what we call our 124D, which was a small report book that is still in place today, years later. and that's where that came from. You, know, you get these ideas and you think, I need something special for domestic abuse. And that improved it because officers then had to do a report book for every domestic abuse that they went to. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible area. And I, and I think the more we know about the 
the technicalities, if I can call it, or the complexities and the modus operandi, of, I suppose, of domestic violence cases, I think the more we better understand as to how we can prevent them, investigate them, and ultimately hold perpetrators to account to ensure they're dealt with appropriately and what we can do to protect, importantly, victims of domestic violence because it, it, it is a blight on society and it must be an awful thing to go through. And having helped and supported and worked with colleagues in that area of policing myself in Indigenous communities in Outback Australia, it is, um, it's very, very difficult. It's very challenging. But... Um, Another area, I think, which kind of lends itself to that, that that incredibly important family investigative and support role is the is the area of family liaison, which uh, I often describe as the sort of unsung heroes of very complex investigations because they are the individuals that sit behind the SIOs to build the rapport, to build the the uh, the trust with the families and the witnesses to really start to, and ultimately guide families through what can often be an incredibly traumatic and unprepared for scenario that they're facing but equally they can be the holders of incredibly important information to allow investigative teams to carry out these complex inquiries and and there is no greater complex investigation than a terrorist incident on the streets of London and I wanted to reflect on your role during what was a sort of defining moment for London in us realising that we weren't immune from the effects of terrorism on our streets, and that was the 7-7 terrorist attacks in London. Uh, you've been promoted to the field to detective superintendent, leading on the family liaison response to those who lost loved ones and were seriously injured, and you led on the community engagement and created that community together strat- a strategic engagement team. I-, I want to talk about the impact that that event had on your policing career and your responsibility of working with family liaison teams and making sure that you were part of what was a, a very much, although a bad period, it was very much a moment in history for London. Yeah, and, you know, um, family liaison teams came out of the McPherson Inquiry. So it, everything's linked. It, it came out of the McPherson Inquiry. We had family liaison teams. Um, they were more on like for like murders you know we'd put a family liaison officer in early days of working out the training and and how people were trained but we had a cohort and before 7-7 the terrorist attack in London um the tsunami the boxing day tsunami had happened um abroad in the in Asia and a lot of, um, sadly, a lot of um, UK citizens had lost their lives. And we sent um, quite a few police officers out, you know, I can't remember what it was, but <laughs> forgive me on that. But we sent a lot of police officers out to deal with um, the fam, to help the families. And we had a big setup at Hendon around the family liaison support. And, um, and then on the back of that, the very sad, tragic uh, incident of um, the London bombings happened, and I was at um, uh, ESB in in the office, and the commander, who was one of our commanders up there, took me with him to Hendon, um, and I was a, a DCI, and um, he took that detective chief inspector, and he took me to Hendon, um, and he dropped me off there, and he went, right, Sue. You're promoted in the field, you're detective superintendent and you're in charge of the family liaison officers um, and putting that in place. 
Um, and I had to pick it up very quickly working with that team. But luckily, if you like, the good bit of luck was that team had to put a lot of strategies together around the tsunami event and how they were dealing with things. So I had some good material to work with. And, and my job was strategic, that taking the what worked from one incident, how did we adapt it very, very quickly into an incident that was you know, live happening now, um, you know, um, carnage around London, uh, people running all over the place, hospitals full of lots of injured people. And it wasn't just the people that died, but loads of people were sadly injured and lost limbs. Um, families were ringing up at the um, at Hendon to the, um, the centre there. Um, and we had to put in place, you know, a process of, um, how do you screen the calls to see who, how do we match the families to the victims that we found? And then my team would come in with, right, if we think that's the family that has probably lost a loved one or had someone injured, I then deployed a family liaison officer um, to that individual. And there were people coming in from abroad and we were having to put family liaison officers where people meet them at the airport and bring them in. Uh, we had the big um, morgue set up in central London, um, which the family liaison officers, uh, and that's a tough job, taking families to identify, to see um, their loved ones, um, and a horrible, horrible situation. Um, but they became very close to the families that they were supporting. Um, and my role was to put the strategy in place, make sure the right policies, the procedure was being followed, that we had the right people, that the people were supported, trained in the right place at the right time, that we were supporting the victims' families and they got everything that they needed. Um, and then at the end, uh, there was a big conference that a colleague then took over. Um, there was a, a colleague coming into the role of the family liaison for the Met, um, and I handed that over to her and she took over a big conference that we took in where the families were able to ask the questions they needed to ask of the investigation team. And I remember going to speak to um, the, inspe the DI and the DCI at Scotland Yard who were leading the incident and having a very open conversation and saying, you've got to meet the families, that they don't want to meet the families. You have got to meet the families. You have got to sit down. You have got to answer their questions because they do not understand everything that's happened. And they need you there. And you are the senior investigating officer and that is your role. You've got to do it. And I had to win those hearts and minds of those um, anti-terrorist teams, you know, the counter-terrorist teams who were leading on that investigation to go in. And they put themselves on offer, but they had to. They had to go in and face the families, um, and and that's a hard thing to do. But um, but the families needed it, and the only place they were going to get their answer from was the senior investigating officers. So um, it it was a big part, a big role for me. Um, you know, I've had family liaison officers. Um, you know, I've worked with them. 
you know, at different points of my career, put them in place. Actually, you know, after the McPherson inquiry, it was one of the jobs was to train family liaison officers and put them into place and make sure that every borough and every unit um, had the ability to be able to contact the right people with the right training to get out into the families. Um, so, yeah, it's um, an interesting field and it was very challenging. You know, the whole thing was challenging. And what was also challenging was a week later having the another four bombs go, you know, they didn't go off, but having them, um, you know, um, those, I think it was on the 16th, I think it was the 16th of July, um, you know, which then sadly did lead to, um, you know, um, John Charles de Menzé being shot. But... Um, there, there were four bombers running around London at the time when people were petrified, not wanting to get on the underground, not wanting to, to get anywhere in central London. Suddenly, four people appeared with, thank God the bombs didn't go off, but with backpacks full of explosives. And I was the most senior officer at Hendon when that call came in. We think we've got another terrorist incident. And everybody turned around and looked at me and I, I had to pull a... Normally, it's commander level and I had to pull everybody into the conference room and set a criteria for the casualty bureau because calls were starting to come in and I had to set, you know, the criteria there and then set, you know, what we're going to do if there are fatalities, get our family liaison back up, you know, for another incident. And um, so before it all kicked off with everybody turning up at Hendon, it was down to me to sort out what potentially could have been a horrific set of circumstances. But thank goodness those bombs didn't go off. 2019 to 2022, the latter part of your policing career, you're a commander, head of um, profession, criminal justice and safeguarding, obviously under the leadership of both Cressida, Dame Cressida Dick and... Um, Sir Mark Rowley what was it like moving into that role you're suddenly around the senior leadership table in terms of quite a significant portfolio that you're responsible for um, you've obviously noted to me that you loved your role as a commander in charge of safeguarding 14 portfolios and then criminal justice working with partners and communities uh, improving how you delivered policing to vulnerable people and protecting them, bringing offenders to justice and pushing the envelope on different criminal justice options. What was that? That that is a, there's a very significant position in UK policing at the rank of commander. It shouldn't be understated because the responsibility and the expectations placed on you often by the deputy commissioner and the commissioner of police is is not to be understated. It's it's a high intense environment because it's it's very results driven and, and expectations need to be met. What was that like for you? So, you know, I love every job I do in policing and I was in charge of as a BCU commander, Hackney and Tower Hamlets, which was one of one of the best roles that I've ever had. And I would have spent all my days to the very end policing in that environment because it had everything that I wanted. Um, but I was um, I was asked if I would be interested that there was a job coming up as a commander for safeguarding, they needed somebody that understood the role of safeguarding, that, you know, lived and breathed it, which I did on, on the boroughs that I worked, that understood 
the communities, how victims, you know, what they what their needs were, um, that understood the London position and also some of the national position because, of, you know, I was involved in as a lead responsible officer for domestic abuse as well, which was one of those strands. Um, and I probably was, you know, extremely skilled and experienced to be able to put my hat in the ring for that job. Um, very surprised that I got it, um, but, um, but embraced it. Uh, a really hard role because 14 areas of safeguarding where the all the people are based on on the boroughs um mainly on the boroughs or although there were some central teams um for uh, like dealing with child abuse and indecent um in, uh, indecent pictures um and exploitation um, but new stuff was coming out. So all this, um, like, exploitation of young people, um, you know, all the um, new legislation, not, not so much new legislation, but get, well, it was new legislation, getting to grips with how we dealt with young people that, you know, when, when you had a missing 14-year-old, you know, or those streetwise, you know, it's on the back of all those big inquiries where police forces had got it so wrong treating young people like, ah, they're streetwise, they know what they're doing. Well, actually, they're exploited. And when you dig into it, they were exploited and sexually exploited as well. Um, and we were unpicking that because some big police forces were at the, uh, you know, Rotherham and Oxford, and they were suffering with you know huge backlash from the public and the press and i did not want that to happen in london and making sure that we had the right thing that we understood what we were doing and we were protecting children and making sure that you know the things we should be doing we were doing so it was about putting in the right audit process that you know looking at the risk to the organization you know looking at all the hmic reports and have we actually done what they've told us to do? Um, you know, uh, MOPAC used to do their own audits, looking at some of those risk assessments. You know, are we doing what we said we should be doing? Um, and I'm picking it all and realising we're not very good at this. And actually, you know, we were, um, we were chastised by the HMIC for our response to child abuse was really poor. Um, and and I need and that was one of the reasons they asked me you know that I probably got the job because I had a good background in some of these areas um, that could pick it up and make sure that the teams were match fit and understood what they should be doing so not just right from the bottom so I unpicked it all and said right as a police officer going to the call what do you need to do this call what are the key things that you need to be looking out for in domestic child abuse, rape, you know, and then making sure the next level of, you know, the reporting, the, is the reporting structure right? You know, is the, um, have the detectives investigating it? Are they set up in the right way to investigate these really serious offences? Do we have the right teams? And we were moving into the BCU model. So did the BCU model enable us to provide the right um, tools for the officers and also give them what they needed to investigate. And then a big part of this is our, um, is our liaison 
or our partnerships with the local authorities because they have a statutory duty around safeguarding adults, safeguarding children, health and well-being. And if you don't tap into some of these things that are going on, you can't do it alone. You know, we can do the investigation, but how do you support and protect young people, their families or domestic abused families? You know, and then working with statutory partners like CPS, probation, um, you know, the court systems to make sure that we are bringing offenders to justice and actually we're getting it right in the court and we're, you know, we're holding people to account. So there was such a lot that I felt I had to do to unpick it all right from the beginning, put these things in place and go back to 14 different areas of safeguarding because it wasn't just, you know, rape, domestic abuse. It was missing persons. It was... Uh, homophobic incidents it was um you know there, there was just you know all the race and faith type hate crimes as well that were happening there was so much there and it was me and a staff officer <laughs> they don't give you a team to do it but you have to rely on that you can get into and this was part of my skill my you know being able to uh, influence and support people on those boroughs and those central teams because they had the people if they if people if I said do something and people didn't want to do it they didn't have to you know they might not do it but convincing the people on the boroughs that this is the right way to do it and this is what you need to do and then what do you need from me as a commander what can I give you as a head of profession what can I get from you know, nationally, what's going on internationally, what what's happening in this world of, you know, some of this exploitation, abuse. How can I take these nuggets and give them to my teams in the boroughs or central units to say, right, this is what we want you to do um, with one staff officer? <laughs> it was a big job, a very big job. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, and then was very fortunate to go through another interview process to get the criminal justice um, head of profession. And, you know, I was working with teams, um, you know, that like the CPS who didn't, you know, they if they don't want to do something, they just ignore the police. And I was like, nope, holding you to account. You know, you and you, directors of the CPS, are going to sit in the same room with me and we're going to make sure this happens and we're going to get it right. And post-COVID, um, as you know, the criminal justice, the backlogs was ridiculous, unbelievable. And we had to, you know, work together to get those backlogs. And it's still not perfect, but work together to get the backlogs down. You know, introducing different ways of bringing offenders to justice because... The whole point of the criminal justice system is if you can find other ways to report people or postal charging or, you know, um, giving cautions on the street or different ways of prosecuting, but not, if you know, like bringing people to justice without going for a prosecution, you'll have less people coming through custody, hence they reduce the numbers of custody. Um, you know, you'll have less people going for court, but it doesn't really work like that. And, that. and actually, they formed all these great strategies in the past on the fact that we'll have less people being charged, going through custody, being charged, going to court. And actually, it didn't work like that at all. 
Um, you had a lot of people going through custody and going to court, but not enough people to process them, either in the police or in the CPS. And I'd been in integrate, um, integrated prosecution teams, so I introduced those originally when I was in Redbridge. And I've got to tell you, they were absolutely brilliant. Um, oh, the first one was in uh, Walden Forest, but then I took it to Redbridge where I was a, a borough commander. And working with a CPS in an office up the corridor couldn't be better for an investigator, you know, for, you know, RCIT officers. And then the CPS didn't have enough people, so they pulled it out, pulled everybody out. Um, and that is such a shame because that's the one thing that worked really well. And it was a real shame, but they, they didn't have the staff to be able to run it and introduce it across the Met. Um, and, you know, they are run ragged, the CPS, because there's so few of them. Um, but it's, you know, but we have to look out for what we need to do in the Met. We need to get the best prosecution, um, get the best evidence together, present it to the CPS and make sure that we can get a case that sticks and goes to court and doesn't have the abstractions and, you know, um, for a case to fall foul or, or not make it through to the end. And um, there are so many pitfalls along the way. But a very interesting role. It's certainly a fascinating area because obviously it's front of mind at the moment. Um, the Home Secretary has only just said that she wants police officers to investigate every crime where there's sort of a lead or, or, or potential uh, avenues of inquiry. But then when you look at the justice system in its totality, it's not just the police. You need the CPS capacity and capability to be able to prosecute these, notwithstanding that, as you quite rightly say, there's a backlog of about 600,000 files uh, before the magistrate's court, um, which is a phenomenal amount to, to, to try and get through just in the backlog. So... Um, Lots of lots of difficult areas in terms of not only the police's capability to respond to the needs and expectations of the community, but uh, all of public service then being able to support the police in prosecuting these matters to a point where victims um, feel they've um, been looked after and their needs have been met. One one area I, I wanted to sort of round out one was is this incredibly proud moment that you had in your policing career. We're fast approaching. Sadly, the 12-month anniversary of the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Um, that's uh, next week. But you, you're one of the few people that's had a, a proud moment in being awarded the Queen's Police Medal, uh, which is an incredible accolade to receive for your work in policing. Um, and you've you've obviously had the, the honour of meeting Her Majesty the Queen. Talk us about that day. It's a huge moment. It's a massive celebration of your efforts and the, the, the teams that you've had, the privilege of leading um, and, and the decisions that you've made and the impacts that you've had on communities far and wide. It was uh, it's a special moment, yeah? Uh, it's unbelievable. Um, I mean, I had no idea that I had been put up for it. You don't know why. You don't know why you get it. Uh, you can imagine, but it was a fabulous honour. Um, and I got it in the birthday honours and went to Windsor Castle at Christmas time. Um, and uh, my dad came. Wow. And my dad was very proud. Um, and my husband and my daughter came as well. And it was just the most wonderful um, uh, opportunity um, to be in that sort of pageantry. Um, you know, you have all the, the guards with their swords and everything. <laughs> um, beautiful location, the most amazing Christmas tree. Incredible. Um, and the Queen, even at that age, knew everything about you. 
she was well briefed you know they they told me that they said to me she'll be well briefed she'll know everything about you but uh, and she spent time with you know she didn't spend a lot of time with people but you know she spent a little time you know just saying hello and whatever and you were told how to stand and go up there shake her hand and she'd pin the, the um your medal on you uh and you know i remember going up to her and she said and so what do you do in the police and um and i said you know we had a chat we, we had a chat but you know she was asking about my police career and one thing and then um so she said, and, and so what, what do you do? And I said, well, I work in Tower Hamlets. I'm a borough commander. I said, um, I look after your crown jewels for you. <laughs> and she laughed and she thought it was hysterical. And then she started chatting to me. <laughs> and um, my husband yeah. said to me, he said, it's really funny. He said, because people like got a couple of seconds and you were up there chatting to her. So, you know, she obviously found it amusing. Um, but it, it was a lovely experience. And then I walked out of the, you know, to, you, they push you, you go around in a circle. And, and as I'm waiting, I was one of the last people. She walked past me, um, you know, she'd finished. She walked past me, sort of smiled and, you know, said hello. And then carried on walking and disappeared behind the Christmas tree. Unbelievable. What an experience. What an experience. It was lovely. It was lovely. And my, as I said, my dad got to be there. So... Um, very proud moment for him. Well, Sue, well, Sue Williams, you know, we, we just spent over an hour and 15 minutes celebrating and reflecting on what has <laughs> been an incredible career in British policing. And I feel like we've only scratched the surface, really, in exploring some of the key areas of your career. Mm. You know, many, many, many fond memories and many fond experiences. But, um, you know, one thing uh, is obviously of note is that the community and the impacts that you've had on many people's lives has always been front of mind and, and helping your staff and helping who will then ultimately help the community try to make London a safer place to, to, to live in. And, and uh, I think on behalf of my little podcast, Protect and Serve, thank you ever so much for your service over what is an incredible length of time. And, uh, you know, you've, you've left policing now. We wish you all the very, very best with the, your endeavours and probably encourage you to maybe write a little book about all of this because it's quite phenomenal. And I think lots of people oh. need to hear your story and celebrate your successes. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, yeah, I loved it. And, if you know, if somebody is listening and wants to encourage their friends, family, neighbours that policing is the most amazing career. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I would absolutely recommend it 110%. Well, Sue, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced,